1: Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And we are here to talk about week 10 of the college baseball season. It's hard to believe here, Joe, but we're uh, we're getting down to to the stretch run of games in college baseball. It's an exciting slate this week. So we're going to talk some about those games highlighted by uh, another top three SEC matchup with uh, Mississippi State going to Vanderbilt. Uh, and we're also going to, because we're entering the stretch run, we're halfway through the SEC season, halfway through the Big 12 season, a little more than halfway through the ACC season. Uh, all three of those conference tournaments are less than five weeks away now. And uh, so we're going to take this opportunity to uh, to look at some of the bubble teams from those conferences Uh, But first, I got to let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by RepSoto. RepSoto has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use RepSoto data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. RepSoto National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the RepSoto National Player Database at RepSoto.com slash national database. All right, Joe, uh, like I said, week 10 on tap here in college baseball. Uh, but before we get to all of that, I got to ask you, this broke just before we we started pressing record here on the podcast. Uh, the double A, I assume there's still double A, the Corpus Christi hooks. I don't remember what happened in the minor league reorganization. Don't tell JJ. Uh, but Corpus Christi announced that they are going to every Wednesday this year wear Whataburger-themed jerseys because Whataburger uh, was, was founded in Corpus Christi and their field is named after Whataburger. And so, Joe, I'm wondering how many t-shirts or hats or jerseys, whatever, you have ordered from the Corpus Christi hooks in the half an hour you have known that these things exist
0: bought them out, bought out their entire stock. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna buy them and write like the days of the week in them. So I have like my Monday set, my Tuesday set. But the, the honey butter if you're gonna if you're going to honor a Whataburger menu item, there are a lot worse choices than the honey butter chicken biscuit. It's an incredible breakfast item, incredible anytime item, frankly. Um so Do they I, offer
1: I, it anytime like is the Whataburger breakfast menu available? All yes.
0: Day? Yes, it is. Yeah and all night crucially. Um, that is a a large part of the appeal. Uh, one of the I don't need to sit here and wax poetic about Whataburger for the I don't know 12th time on the podcast Mm -hmm. necessarily, (laughs) but one of the great things about Whataburger is that it really does kind of there are some fast food places that are kind of known as late night, middle of the night food, hungover food, you know, whatever you, however you want to call it. Um, and there are some places that are just you know, you, you eat it, you can eat it for a decent lunch, like nobody's some of it is because they don't stay open that late, but nobody's necessarily looking at Chick-fil-A as like the, you know, the middle of the night food or hungover food, but it's, you know, a good place to get a nice lunch or whatever if you're, if that's your kind of thing, but um, whatever can do it all, you know, people eat there for lunch and for dinner, and you, you can get it in the middle of the night, you can get breakfast all day, it's a pretty varied menu, uh, but the, I would probably put the honey butter chicken biscuit at the top of the line in terms of if you were going to put something on a jersey to really celebrate it, that would, probably be it. There's some other iconic menu items, but that one has a pretty good Q rating, I think. I don't think there's anybody out there who really doesn't like that particular item.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it sounds delicious. I, I, My Whataburger experience is limited to their burgers, but it, it does sound like a, a good breakfast item.
0: I would also advocate for the honey butter chicken, uh, or the, uh, what is it called? The, the, uh, not, uh, the um, honey barbecue chicken tender sandwich. I, I forget exactly how it's worded. They've got like a barbecue chicken tender sandwich that's quite good. Uh, I was always a fan of the AM, AM, uh, what is it? Uh, A1 Thick and Hearty Burger. It's got steak sauce on it. I would also advocate for that being on a, uh, a Jersey top, as well as the Chop House Cheddar Burger, which has kind of like a creamier sauce on it. Uh, and also with like shredded cheddar cheese as opposed to the sliced cheese. So th- those are, I would also, if we're, if we're going to look next year for Corpus Christi to, to have something else in their uniforms, those were the menu items I would probably most advocate for
1: all right you heard it here first corpus christi that's uh that's joe, right. joe's analysis of, of what, what you should uh marketed advice for for next season so we'll uh MCT we'll fight. definitely look for joe in uh in a whataburger jersey slash hat combo in omaha or some other ballpark near you all right joe um like i said we're five weeks out from conference tournaments starting Around the country, a few of them start earlier, but the major conference tournaments are five weeks away, halfway through several of these leagues schedules. And as I wrote today over at baseballamerica.com, we record this as we record this on Wednesday. Um, it's time to get real about some of these teams and their regional hopes. I think previously when I'd been working on a a projected field of 64, you could kind of just say, well, you know, maybe they'll get hot. You know, I I'll believe in the talent. Like maybe they'll figure this out. Well, there are only five weeks left to figure it out. And, you know, you really can start kind of saying, well, like if they don't win this, then like they're really in trouble or like, they're going to have to sprint an upset. And so it's, it's a, it's a, it's an opportunity to get really real. I think about, about some of these teams and I wrote, I like. I went through and I looked at all of the the bubble teams in in those three leagues, and I went through and, and evaluated the remaining conference schedule and predicted whether they would be in or out. And we've talked about some of these teams before in in a similar context, uh, particularly the ACC teams. We we kind of looked at the bottom half of that league and eyeballed the the teams that are under 500 in the league and, and tried to figure out which one of them could get on a run and 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 get into the tournament and so we've talked about the ACC teams i don't we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on them but i will say having done this exercise i came away feeling a lot better about nc state than i had previously um you know we'll see how that turns out it's not an easy slate but i uh they're playing a lot better basically is is the gist of it and they might be able to do it uh but but you know, the the team that i wanted to target here is LSU. And you know LSU is potentially the biggest brand in college baseball certainly one of the the bluest of the blue bloods and this is a team that has been struggling for some time now. They have not been ranked in the top 25 since they lost that series to Oral Roberts in March and you know, they're now sitting at four and 11 in the sec. And for the last few weeks, I had stuck with them in the projected field of 64. I just felt like there's enough talent that maybe they could get it turned around. There's a lot of history under pulmonary of LSU teams, getting it together in April and may and and going on a run. Ultimately that has not happened to this point. And, And as they turn the corner into the second half of the SEC season, they're four and 11. I don't think it, we can reasonably think they're going to flip that result and go 11 and four over the next five weeks, almost no matter what their their record would be to get to 500 in the SEC, which basically guarantees you a, a spot in the field. If your RPI is decent at all, and LSU's RPI is plenty decent, it's in the top 30. Um, but it, it is – a, a time now where we can kind of evaluate what is remaining on their schedule and, and what they are going to have to do to get into into the field. And, you know, Joe, I'm just going to read you their 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 run in here in the SEC. And and then we can kind of talk about whether this is a totally hopeless cause or whether LSU still has some hope left. And OK, so they, they start this weekend at home against Ole Miss. Then they get Arkansas coming to the box. Then they go to Auburn. Then Alabama comes to Baton Rouge, and they finish at AM. So they get three of the uh, – or excuse me, two of the, the big, big SEC West teams in the next two weeks, but they do get them both at home. And then two out of the final three series are on the road, but AM is 4 and 11 in the SEC right now themselves, and Auburn is in last place in the SEC. We've talked about how I think they're better than their record, but uh, there they are still in last place in the SEC West.
0: So I'm with you. I don't think they're going 11 and 4 to get back to 500, but this smells a lot like going 9 and 6 to get to 13 and 17 and going to Hoover with some work to do. And that's that's kind of complicated. I think sometimes it's easy to buy into the idea of going to the conference tournament and getting some work done and getting in. And we've seen that in the past, I think. Now, in,
1: LSU does play very well in Hoof. They do. They, they,
0: they, they traditionally do, yeah. I mean, I think... 19 Florida felt like they had some work to do when they went to Hoover um, and they ended up getting in whether and we'll never exactly know. Well, whether.
1: 19 Florida did all their work the week before at Mizzou. Right. I honestly Mizzou. don't I, like I'd have to look at the tournament, but I feel like Florida did not do much in Hoover. I think they won their first game, which was the, the required point, but they swept Mizzou on the road the final weekend of the season to really push them
0: over the top. Right. And that knocked Mizzou out. That was a Mizzou bubble team too. So yeah, I remember that. I just, I I was thinking they did more, maybe they didn't, but the the point stands that what I was going to say is that I think sometimes it's easy to say that, but then also not realize in a typical case, how much work that actually entails because if you're 13 and the SEC
1: tournament, it starts for these teams on the bubble with a single. uh,
0: Yeah. It's,
1: it's a must win game on Tuesday. And like it's a Tuesday game, so either you have to orient your whole weekend the the weekend before to save one of your three starters to pitch on that Tuesday, or you're playing a must win midweek game.
0: Yeah, so I mean you that so that entails winning that first game, and then you're going to take two losses before you leave or you're going to go so deep on the weekend that like, it's going to be without, I mean, if LSU goes in and need work to be done and then gets to the final, they're okay. But uh, certainly, obviously if they win it, it's a moot point. But so you're talking about really winning at least two games because you're going to, again, take a couple more losses in, in the SEC tournament. So it's not as simple as like getting there and like you win a game and suddenly it it completely changes the, the entire postseason profile. So through that lens, I do think they're, if you made me bet, I think they're gonna fall a little bit short, but I do think they're gonna do enough to finish the regular season to be in a position where they feel like they can get some work done in Hoover. Um, that's that's my general take, I think.
1: I think LSU's best hope is that they win those final three series: Auburn, Bama, AM. I don't know. That means you've you have at least six wins from there. And then if they just don't get swept by Ole Miss and Arkansas at home over the next two weeks. Now you're talking about minimum eight wins over the, over this final five weeks, and now you have, again, minimum 12 wins. 12 and 18 is not going to get it done. That's going to leave you basically needing a very, very deep run at Hoover. Uh, but if they can steal another win somewhere, whether that means sweeping a team or upsetting Ole Miss or Arkansas, now you're 13 and 13 and 17 is not ideal, but their RPI at that point would probably be in the top 25 at least. So they'd have that going for them. Um, they have some nice things in their non-conference. You know, they beat La Tech. That suddenly looks really good. Uh, they beat Lafayette. The Cajuns are currently trending as a, as a, a, uh, a, uh, uh, a tournament team that in Tulane, like they they have some nice non-conference things going for them, uh, despite that Oral Roberts series loss. And, you know, I, the thing about the conference tournament is like, yes, they would absolutely have to win on Tuesday and they probably need to win one of their after Tuesday becomes double elimination again, until it again returns to single elimination on the weekend. The sec tournament structure is kind of complicated. Um, they would if LSU wins on Tuesday and then wins one of their next two games. I would start feeling a lot better. I, I I think that it's always hard to tell how a committee is going to evaluate a conference tournament. Those games count towards your conference record in the committee's eyes. So, like that, it, it's it, it does count to your the, the wins and the losses count. But I feel like the wins are more emphasized so that if LSU won twice in Hoover and got then to 15 SEC wins, I think that would weigh more heavily in the committee's mind than the fact that they would be 15 and 19. I think a lot more focus would be on the 15 than on the, the losing record in SEC play. So I, that's when it gets tricky. It gets murky. You're now putting your, your fate in the hands of the committee, but I mean, frankly, I, I think it's going to be hard for LSU to do anything other than put its fate in the hands of the committee this year. That's that's just the hole they've dug for themselves at this point.
0: For sure. Yeah, it's um, it's important now. We're getting to the time of year, too. where We're starting to look at really evaluating these resumes holistically. And I think it's a good reminder for fans listening uh, that depending on what, who your team is, what they need kind of matters. So you heard Teddy reference the RPI for LSU. LSU doesn't have an RPI problem. Now I wouldn't recommend, you know, dropping, I think they have got a game against Southern. I, you know, I wouldn't recommend dropping that game, uh, but even that would probably be fine. If they win enough, their their issue is winning enough SEC games. That's plain and simple their issue. If you're South Alabama, like they're probably going to go 18 and 12, 19 and 11 in the Sun Belt. At least that's the way it's trending. That may not be enough from an RPI standpoint. So you, you really have to look at look at it from all angles. It's really easy to kind of just look at RPI or, you know, sometimes when you're talking about some of these better conferences, it's it's easy to look at, you know, you hear someone talk about how I think you'll see it in the American this year. Someone in the American's gonna put up a pretty good record and say, look at look at the record that we put up in, in the American. And well, if the RPI is 62, like that's probably just not gonna matter. So depending on who your team is, you've got different needs. And you can't just look at at one thing this time of year and, and really focus on that. One other thing that I, I wanted to <laughs> to bring up, I think LSU's a a great instructive example of this is we talk every year about the idea that the SEC and the or, and or the ACC could break records for number of teams that get into the field. And and I've just become increasingly convinced, and I need to remind myself this every February because when when you and I start talking preseason projections, we always you know pack in more major conference teams and. I know why we do that. I'm not I don't think we're wrong for that. I think that's just the way it works out. But I, I do need to remind myself that I'm, I'm I'm more and more convinced as time goes on that unless the committee completely changes its philosophy about how it chooses its teams. And they've done this in softball, right? That the example Yes, yeah, so unless they given, go to the
1: softball model, and I don't fully understand it, but every SEC team and every Big Ten team basically make the field in softball.
0: Yeah, I mean maybe maybe we do a crossover episode with Kayla on the softball America side or something and have her educate us on what's happening there. Because unless the committee changes the philosophy on how they select these teams, I'm more and more convinced as time goes on that the math just doesn't work for that many teams to get in. When you're talking about minimum 13 14 conference wins in these conferences and minimum top 40 rpi like i i feel like that's almost just too many variables and in most years over 500 overall which can be a problem not so much for the the blue bloods in the sec but can be a problem for some of the teams that that are a little farther up north and you know or that really challenge themselves at a conference so um I, you know maybe it'll happen but i'm increasingly like i said increasingly convinced that the math just might not work for that honestly
1: yeah, it's uh it it does look like it's a very difficult needle to thread. I've I've always I've known that for a few years, but I just keep falling into well, maybe this year it'll be the year that they thread that needle. But the leagues, the 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 weird thing about it is if you don't have absolute uh cellar dwellers, it becomes very complicated for everyone to get the wins that they need to get. Um if you don't have teams that are only winning a couple games and i mean that just doesn't happen very often at all uh one other sec team joe let's uh let's let's address here that's kentucky and if you look at kentucky they're 22 and 12 7 and 8 uh they have some nice wins here they you know won a midweek against louisville they split that that series uh this year um and you know they're sitting at 7 and 8 so if they just do that again in the second half of the schedule they'd have 14 SEC wins and at least minimally be on the bubble but probably feel pretty good about where they could be at that point the bubble this year is very soft like i said tennessee has some pretty decent or uh, kentucky has some pretty decent wins already and would add some more by virtue of going 7 and 8 again in the second half of, of SEC played, but Joe, here is, here's how Kentucky closes this weekend at home against Bama, then at Tennessee home against Florida home against South Carolina at Vanderbilt. I don't think that there's any harder five week stretch coming for any team in the country.
0: Hard to imagine it. And boy, that, that Alabama series this weekend is, is basically a must win. I mean, you can't, Unless Kentucky is going to go on such a run that they they start winning some of these last four series against Tennessee, Florida, South Carolina, and Vanderbilt, at which point... point And by the way, they've it. done nothing to this point to indicate that
1: that would happen.
0: Correct. So, you know, if they do that, then all of a sudden they've earned it. But otherwise, like this is not... I think at this point, they didn't do enough against Georgia and LSU the last two weeks. Those were two big series. They lost them both. I don't think they did enough those two weekends to be able to do the thing where you, you know, win the series, maybe, you know, maybe you win the series against Alabama, but then you just don't get swept in the others and you're okay. Like, I don't think they can back their way into the regionals, at the into regionals at this point with what they've, with what they've done and, and not done. And they've had some opportunities. It's not just Georgia and LSU. It's, you know, a pair of one run losses against Mississippi State in games that they were, they were very much in, you know, not finishing the sweep against, Missouri, you know, um, you're going to have games like that. No team is perfect in that way. No team wins literally every game they feel like they should win and and what have you, but um, they've had some chances. They just haven't done quite enough. And it feels like a team that could have gone either way, could have gone bubble in, could have gone bubble out. And I think they're, they're probably destined to be bubble out in this case.
1: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, That LSU series was massive at the time. You could tell getting them, getting the Tigers at home, the Tigers were reeling a little bit already and the Wildcats are not able to take advantage, and that loss to Missouri on a Sunday. I mean, like I, I don't think the season's ultimately going to come down to that. But if they were eight and seven versus seven and eight, I'd feel better about it right now.
0: They had that game in hand too. I mean, that was a late, late Missouri win there. So that one, that one probably hurts in particular if you would have talked to the coaches and players about that one. Yeah, I mean, Missouri. Like we're talking about here,
1: there, there just aren't teams that only win a few games here in the SEC. Missouri is. Probably by talent the worst team in the SEC. Like again, I'll take Auburn over Missouri. Those are two division uh uh seller dwellers. And Missouri had potentially by winning that game, spoils Kentucky season. They won a series against AM. AM now four and eleven. Um, they're in even more trouble, I would say, than LSU because actually, no, I I absolutely they're in more trouble than LSU because their RPI is in the nineties. Um, you know, so they're in a position where they need to both win SEC games and improve their RPI. And, you know, those two things will go hand in hand, but they're never going to get their RPI as high as LSU's is. So uh, that's a, that's a challenge for the Aggies. And, you know, it, it again, they're, they're just are no easy games in the SEC and and these teams fighting on the bubble, like really need to, to make sure they take advantage of all the, all the opportunities they get and, you know, ultimately Kentucky, it looks like may fall just short. And that'd be, if they do, that'd be the second time in like four NCAA tournaments, three NCAA tournaments where that happened. I I keep doing math right now. I guess it's three. It was 2018 that it happened to them. Potentially the last team out or first team out rather were never really sure about exactly where they landed, but it was sure seemed like it was them or Northeastern at the end. and, And it went with Eastern's way and, um, Kentucky, if they get in, they will absolutely have earned it by what they do over the next five weeks. But if they don't, you know, I, I think they still probably will finish pretty close to to the field. And I'm sure that will be a little solace to them, although it is still a big step when you consider where Kentucky had been in the 19 and 20
0: seasons, I would say. Yeah, it's funny that the I've had to do this to myself, to be honest, like we I think we've this is branching off going bouncing all over the place a little bit, but it's interesting. You bring this kind of that idea up that like, this is a big step forward for Kentucky because I, I've had to tell myself this a little bit over the last few weeks. I think we get so uh, conditioned to the fact that for most of the SEC, the expectation is regionals every year for most of the SEC. There are a handful of exceptions, Uh, Missouri, obviously, um, and Kentucky maybe now, you know, I think Auburn's in a place now where that's kind of an expectation, but, whether that's fair or not, but, you know, Kentucky is just historically not that program. And, you know, they, they reached some high highs you know, Nickman Jones first year there and they fell off in in 2018, like, like you described a little bit. And then they weren't, they just weren't very good in 2019 at all and kind of a rebuilding year. Um, And so the idea that they're just going to bounce back and now just put it on cruise control and be an annual regional team, which I think is an unrealistic expectation set by being in the sec just doesn't apply to Kentucky in the same way, and you know maybe Kentucky fans don't don't like that reality, but I, I think it is reality uh, at least as, as the as the way things stand right now.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's a tricky thing there for sure. Um, you know you want to keep improving. You see what Louisville's doing. You see making a super regional for the first time in program history, and and then the kind of reset that that followed. They dealt with a lot of injuries in eighteen and. Um, you know, missed an opportunity there to, to build on the momentum. And and then, yeah, the, the reset over the last couple of years sure has been painful, but um, you know, we'll see where, where the Wildcats go from here, but uh, those are two SEC teams that are facing some really tough slates here down the stretch and uh, you know, interesting, interesting to look at. If you want to, if you want to read more on the subject, and I dug into Alabama, Baylor, Virginia, UNC, NC State, Duke, um, West Virginia, uh, you can, uh, again, you can check that out over at baseballamerica.com and uh, see uh, see at least how, how I'm reading the tea leaves as we look at the final five weeks of the regular season in, uh, in those three conferences, which, not incidentally, are uh, the top three conferences by RPI this year. So check out uh, that about the the bubble teams. Uh, All right, Joe, we're going to look at this weekend's biggest series here coming up in a second, but first, check this out. Okay, Joe, we're to the time in our weekly preview show where we break down the biggest series to watch of the weekend. I pick four, and then you pick one that's a little bit further off the radar, but still merits uh, note for the uh the interested college baseball fan which you guys definitely are if you're listening here to the Baseball America College podcast and if you are listening and aren't subscribed you can do so on your favorite podcasting app Apple Podcasts Spotify Stitcher anywhere where you get your podcasts you can uh hit the subscribe button on on the Baseball America podcast and we uh we go twice a week here during the season so it goes straight to your phone once you uh, once you hit that subscribe button All right Joe uh this week the biggest series I would say I mean there are two top 10 series both coming out of the SEC biggest one is, has got to be though college baseball Twitter's biggest rivalry it's Mississippi State at Vanderbilt
0: yeah it's uh, no doubt a big one um, it, will, it will be a gonna uh, be a snippy series online I'll put it I'll put it that way I would uh, I would a little, little chirpy. I, I'd love, I'd love there to be a, uh, I'd like an oral history. I'm generally like kind of, I don't know how this happened. Yeah. I'm, I'm in on oral histories, like book length, oral histories. I'm out on kind of like the oral histories that are like 2000 words online. However, I would read any length oral history of how this happened because I don't really necessarily associate Vanderbilt as being a fan base that is, uh you know, very particularly chirpy and, particularly online, to be honest with you. So like
1: the origin story, I guess, is that, you know, Mississippi State is probably, their fan base has been the most vocal that I've seen about complaining about the inequities that they view between scholarship situations. Um, It's not anywhere close to as simple as the Mississippi fans. And I did mean to use the word there because Ole Miss fans will will chime in on this too, though. Typically, you see it coming from Mississippi State fans. But the Magnolia State fans, uh, it, it's not as cut and dry as they often seem to make it out to be. Uh, you know, but obviously, Vanderbilt's scholarship situation is what it is. Um, so I, I think that's where it comes from, but I don't really understand what the flashpoint was. Obviously, they played an outstanding super regional. And I'm sure that contributed, but I feel like it was happening before then, or at least it shouldn't just have been driven by that. But you know, who knows? But th- this is a return to uh, to the site of that that fantastic Super Regional in 2018, uh, which uh, Mississippi State upset upset the doors.
0: Indeed, yeah, that was uh, that. That certainly will t- turn the heat up on any on any rivalry. Uh, I, I understand the frustration about you know Vanderbilt scholarship to that kind of stuff, but like that is so played out. Like I get that you're like, (laughs) uh, we don't need to rehash that, but it's just so played out. Um, In any event. um, Yeah. Big, big weekend obviously for both. Ultimately this is one of those series where it's kind of nice. Now it's it's probably stressful for the fans of these, of of these programs. I get that. But as a college baseball fan, this is one of those series where you can really just kind of sit back and revel in it and enjoy it because ultimately the stakes are high, but the stakes are also pretty low because I think both of these teams are just so good. And we're so confident in their place among the best in the sport that there probably isn't ultimately a ton on the line here in terms of hosting or anything along those lines. Seeding spots for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's
1: ordering of top eight seeds. That's probably the the yeah. best thing you could say. Or Vanderbilt could like they they're trying to, I guess, chase down the hogs for best record in the SEC and therefore one seed in the SEC tournament and being able to say they're regular season champs, but um they face a pretty tough closing schedule so it's not even like you can just say like well this is their last one like i mean they play florida in a week so i and they they still will miss too like i I don't i don't know i don't know that there's anything more than head-to-head and a little bit of standings and definitely top eight seating at stake here
0: yeah. For sure. Which is not nothing. Like, I don't mean to downplay that necessarily, but it's, you know, at this I mean, time, I'm mean, i happy
1: to, if you, if you okay. don't want to, I'll do it. Fair, fair <laughs> enough.
0: So, but it is kind of nice to just that the stakes are just what they are. And you can just kind of enjoy the the, the games and, and the games for what they are, which is, I think a kind of a nice place to kind of a nice place to be. I know the fans won't necessarily see it that way, but I think it's not, you know, this is going to be a series where Mississippi state, we've, we've talked about their offense has been, has looked really good at times has certainly been inconsistent because they've also looked pretty poor at times. The fact of the matter is if, if Mississippi state is going to win the series, you know, I I like their chances to win a Sunday game, not only because of of Vanderbilt we've we've talked about, they're still sorting some of their depth, but also Mississippi state really does seem to revel in kind of those types of games where it's a lot of, a lot of bullpen moves, um, kind of teams trading blows a little bit. They really do seem to kind of thrive in that atmosphere so to win the series, they're going to have to win one of the other games, which means they're probably going to have to get something done against Rocker or Lighter, And that that's a tough task. They can do it. Um, and we'll just have to see if it's one of the weekends where the offense is clicking on all cylinders. And that's part of what's probably frustrating for this offense is it, it is in there. They've done it. Um, it just hasn't shown up as often as they would really like, but to win the series, it's going to have to show up on the first two days at least once.
1: I don't think this is a great matchup for the Bulldogs because First of all, it's in Vanderbilt or it's in Nashville. Second of all, the way that Rocker and Lighter or Vanderbilt has lost one game that Rocker and Lighter each have started this year. And in both cases, they gave up as a team, but also Rocker and Lighter themselves gave up multiple home runs. And if that's the recipe to beating them, and that is an easy recipe or a you know, basic recipe to beating any ace is catch them with, with home runs, especially power arms like those two guys who are going to provide the power for you. You just have to, to square it up and, and drive it. Mississippi state is not an offense that's built around the home run. So if they're going to have to manufacture or string together hits this is not the two pitchers to be trying to do that against. There are not a lot of free 90s coming. Rocker does not walk many people. Lighter is a little more wild, but um, not significantly so. And, you know, Vanderbilt has a good, solid defense. It's just not a place where you're going to get free 90s a whole lot. So if they're having to manufacture runs, I think that just makes things that much harder for them. They're going to have to steal some bases in that in, in that instance. Um, so I, I just don't really like this matchup for Mississippi State. They do have a lot more depth. Uh, you know, that we, we've talked about that time and again when we talk about Mississippi State is just their bullpen depth. Um, but they're going to need to get more out of their starting pitching. There was a lot of concern coming out of Starkville about that after last weekend. Uh, when Bednar and Fristo struggled, McLeod was fine on Friday, but then they didn't get much uh, of any length out of either Bednar or Fristo, and so they have to be better this weekend. Uh, so I guess my key for for Mississippi State is getting more length out of the starters and finding a way to score quick runs against Vanderbilt because it can't just be about you know loading the bases and you know, slapping a couple hits around or whatever. Like it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be quick runs, especially in the first two games of the series.
0: I think that's a good call. I also, you know, I don't think it's a particularly great matchup given Vanderbilt's lineup either because they, you know, if Mississippi state has to, if the worst case scenario happens and they don't get length on the mound from their starters or don't even get quality, like it's not even necessarily about length. It's just kind of about quality and letting. Yeah. I mean, game. five innings would be fine. That's what McLeod
1: yeah. did. That's fine.
0: Yeah, it's just about, you know, getting the quality on the front end and then being able to control the game with your matchups. The trouble is the Vanderbilt offense, it does have some star power at the top. You know, Dominic Keegan's having a nice year. But for me, it's more about one through nine depth in Vanderbilt's lineup. And that makes it really hard to just kind of game plan around the lineup a little bit because it can't just be let's let's set up our pitching for when the lineup turns back around and maybe we can feast a little bit against the, the bottom of the lineup. Like that's just not gonna work against Vanderbilt. Like every out there is tough. So you you're really gonna have a hard time mixing and matching uh unless you're really, really sharp on the mound. And they're capable of having games where they're really, really sharp on the mound, but less you know, less so lately in SEC play. It's been a little bit less and less where they've been able to succeed that way. So outside of of course, you know, Landon Sims, who continues to be about as good as it gets. But um this is a tough, tough lineup to be able to just play mix and match with for sure.
1: Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, you know, and I we touched on Vanderbilt a lot last week. I'll just go back to I think it was huge that they won that series, just get their mental picture going going right into, into this weekend and, you know, show that they can excel even in a hostile environment, which they're not going to face this weekend, um, you know, but these are going to be pressure-packed games. Uh, the the tension is going to be real if the games are close uh, you know so Vanderbilt's going to feel that and you know the fact that they've already won a series um you know in that kind of uh situation and that series happened to be in front of a hostile crowd like I, I think that's going to serve them very well this weekend against a Mississippi state team that, that's definitely going to come in motivated uh, and looking to prove something particularly, um you know knowing that that rocker and lighter uh are on the mound and are who they are all right joe let's uh let's keep it in the sec and this is arkansas number one arkansas going to south carolina it's another top 10 series here this one starts on thursday it's the sec network game on thursday so if you're listening to this podcast on thursday you got got a little bit of time before it starts if it's on friday well obviously uh somebody won and somebody lost last night but overall hopefully the analysis still analysis still holds um arkansas continues not to have lost a series yet thus far they lead the SCC west um and you know they as i've mentioned several times sure look like they're the best team in the country south carolina Looking to prove something a little bit here. They've, they've lost some some tough series against some big-time opponents, but those were on the road at Texas, at Vanderbilt. They got a big series win against Florida a few weeks ago. Um, they've generally looked very good in SEC play, but this is going to be the biggest test they've faced in a few weeks, potentially all season, depending on whether you want to say at Vanderbilt on SEC opening weekend is tougher than home to, to Arkansas. Uh, but this is, uh, this is a big one and and another chance for the Gamecocks, uh, to try and prove themselves on, on a huge stage.
0: It's a little bit of six and one and half dozen of another, depending on if you think that the Vanderbilt series or this one is a, is a bigger test. Like, uh, you know, (laughs) I, I, the beholder stuff there, I think probably, but uh, South Carolina will come in with a little bit of an advantage in that they're a little more rested than Arkansas. I would, you know, looking at it today, there is talk of the fact that this might... So if you're a listener and you don't get around to this Friday, listen quick because it is a Thursday start and there is talk of a doubleheader uh, Friday to finish series uh, with no Saturday game because the weather on Saturday looks uh, not great, Bob. So uh, they, it might be a quick series, might be fast. But it, when you combine what Arkansas dealt with the previous weekend where they were games were condensed, uh, they could be looking at six SEC games in seven days, including two doubleheaders. Now, you might be thinking you know, with Arkansas, that's actually not maybe as much of an imposition because their whole thing is, you know, the, we've joked about 27 pitchers for 27 outs. So on paper, that is not necessarily the worst thing in the world. And it could play out that way, but you know, Dave Van Horn's talked this week already when asked about what his rotation was going to be, you know, he's going Caleb Bolden in the first game and, and Peyton Paulette in the second game. And, you know, the, his reasoning for Bolden is was largely, and, and there's more to it than this. I'm not suggesting this was the the entire extent of the decision-making process, but he kind of said that he, he's our most rested guy. <laughs> and so already, you know, they're kind of managing their pitching situation there around the idea they might have to man another doubleheader this weekend after having done so uh, last weekend. So that's, that's kind of a tough thing for them. And I, I think this is a tough test for Arkansas as well because of that. Um, but ultimately I think for, for South Carolina, I think the is here is that this lineup has um, has started to, to slip a little bit, and it kind of reminds me of what the way we talked about Arkansas's offense three or four weeks ago, where it was a little bit top-heavy, and it was pretty home-run reliant, but it didn't feel like they were hitting enough of those, except for in clutch moments, seemed like Robert Moore would come up with a ninth-inning home run every other day. There, they weren't doing enough of that to make it a really effective offense. Now you look at Arkansas, and the offense is coming. Like they're swinging the bat pretty well. The depth is good there. Still, somewhat surprisingly, it's it's not necessarily Christian Franklin, uh, you know, leading the way there. And there are a couple guys that you know, Jalen Battles. I, I, I guess they're they're kind of uh, you know hasn't been as good. They're still kind of waiting on him to come back around. Uh, but the depth is, has been pretty good, and now they are that kind of quick strike offense that we talked about. Um, the fact that, you know, uh, Mississippi State is not. That is what Arkansas is. They are a quick strike offense at this point, like 72 home runs, 70 home runs, something like that on the season. And South Carolina, I think, wants to be that kind of offense. And when they've been going well, they are that kind of offense led by, you know, Wes Clark and and Brady Allen and Andrew Eister. And um, that has slowed quite a bit. Uh, I think Wes Clark is a great example of that, where he hasn't hit a home run since early April. Uh, His average is at basically a season low. I think before the last game of last weekend series, it was actually slightly lower than it is now, but long story short, his average is lower than it's been all season right now, basically. And so I think this is a big opportunity that you can get the Arkansas pitching staff. The thing with getting the Arkansas pitching staff though, is you really have to kind of knock them back on their heels. And this is an Arkansas pitching staff. That's already having to kind of mess with the rotation and kind of mix and match guys based on who's rested, who do we feel comfortable with? You know, they're getting Zeb Vermillion back. They're supposed to get Connor Nolan back this week. So that's a couple of extra arms there. But if you can knock Arkansas back on its heels and, and get, have, you know, Bolden or whoever knocked out after an inning or two, you can really kind of start to have a little bit of success against them. Um, but the South Carolina offense is going to have to actually do that. They're not going to be handed that because it's a talented group for Arkansas, but uh, they can be got. I just don't know if South Carolina is the offense to, to do that right now.
1: I, the one thing is, if it is a doubleheader on Friday, I believe that becomes seven-inning games because SEC rules are complex. There are seven innings. If it's a travel day, that would be the final day of the regular or of the series, even if Arkansas intended to travel the following day. But anyway, um, Arkansas has the arms to cover that many innings, for sure. South Carolina has a very deep s- staff as well. Uh, I mean, the thing that... Arkansas gets into trouble with any time that a series gets shortened like that is they then have to decide how to use Kevin cops. And basically they have to decide whether he is better suited, like whether they want him to have an extended outing of three to four innings in one game and then not pitch again, or if they want him to be able to pitch twice in, in the series. And if they want him to be able to pitch twice, obviously that's gotta be shorter shorter stints and he is i mean for me the best reliever in the country so i that that's the uh that's the challenge for them that to me is the the real only challenge from a from a shorter series because everyone you know south carolina has to deal with the same thing um the the South Carolina offense is interesting. I mean, yeah, that Wes Clark thing is kind of crazy. He was as hot as anyone, hotter than anyone in the country to start the season. Somewhat predictably, once he got into SEC play with some pitchers that know, you know coaching staffs that game plan him more, pitchers that know him more, and teams that just want to make sure Wes Clark doesn't beat them a little more. Uh, he he has slowed, but it's been a, a massive slow And, you know, that's a that's a problem for South Carolina because they need either him or somebody else to to step up and and get some things going. This is going to be a team that's always a little more reliant on its pitching staff. That's just kind of where South Carolina is at this year, Uh, but they still need some of those stars to uh, to step up and do star things offensively. Uh, And that's definitely going to be true this weekend facing the number one team in the country. You need you need those guys to show up. And, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see if they can, um, I'm sure that the people in, in Columbia are going to be into this. Um, you know, but the the other thing is that Arkansas, as I've mentioned several times before, like they have played all of their big series on the road. This is just another one of them. they have already played, uh, you know, four top 20 teams in road series, they're 10 and 2 in those games. You know, they've been to Oxford. They've been to Starkville. Going to Columbia uh is uh it's not gonna be a big deal for them. I don't think they're not gonna not gonna be concerned about that. So I think it could help South Carolina to be at home, but it's not gonna bother Arkansas at all that they're uh that they're not in Baumwalker Stadium. Yeah,
0: Dave Van Horn in, in media earlier this week was asked about, you know, South Carolina's increasing attendance this weekend at Founders Park and he was asked about that and he said well there's there's no way they're going to have as many people in there as they had at Mississippi State and Ole Miss so like they I don't cannot nope. <laughs> you know it's really not going to make that much of a of a difference or so. in
1: Arlington probably even no, you know you're probably
0: right yeah and so, like
1: I, I'll they'll be hard-pressed to have a crazier crowd than Ruston did you know I'm not that's true I'm here to challenge the South Carolina fan base I'm just here to say that that crowd in Ruston on Friday night looked insane. Yeah,
0: Ruston can be an SEC atmosphere when that place is really is really rocking. So that's that's true. It's a good point. The, the on the pitching side for South Carolina, Will Sanders has been a big deal with how good he's been in the rotation. He's really kind of settled in in that spot, and that's allowed South Carolina to to use Julian Bosnick in a little different way. Use him out of the bullpen. He's been more effective out of the bullpen, and that's kind of it. Feels like that's made the depth a little bit a little bit better there. It's also, you know, if you're looking for South Carolina, if you're looking for kind of uh, other signs of optimism um, for this weekend, it's that, you know, these are two pitching staffs in SEC play that have gone a little bit two different directions. South Carolina has pitched pretty well in SEC play. And now let me, on the front end, different schedules, playing different teams. Like, I'm not saying this is necessarily apples to apples, but, um, you know, South Carolina and SEC play, 348 ERA, um, which is about what they've done all year that's about you know the same as it is as overall um you know arkansas has been a little different story 523 team era and sec play cops and wicklander have been outstanding um zeb vermilion has an era in the mid 4s every other pitcher on staff has an era above five in sec play i would Outside be interested
1: of, to see what that looks like without the on this
0: weekend yeah for sure i mean there, there definitely is like some um fun with small sample sizes you can play you know like that those kind of games um, but it is to say that um, you know again, if you're looking for for reasons for optimism for South Carolina, that's that's potentially one of them. It could be nothing. It, it could be again a small sample size situation with the Arkansas pitching staff. Um, but it, it, maybe it's not, and, and that's the great thing about this. We will see it play out on the field, and uh, we'll be able to take a look at it that way. Absolutely. So that's uh,
1: that's an exciting one. We'll, uh, we'll we'll get to see Arkansas again in a in a massive series, not. Uh, not, I'm not getting sick of that, so I'll I'll certainly take it, even if the Hogs are uh you know, maybe getting a little sick of seeing teams in the in the top ten show up in the opposing dugout. But that's part of life in the SEC. All right, let's uh let's go down to Conference USA, Joe, and I'll just introduce this and mostly clear the floor for you. I know you've dug into this at a level which I have not yet. Um, it is Old Dominion at charlotte this is the first of back-to-back home and home four-game series they're they're doing this one in charlotte following week in norfolk these are the top two teams in conference usa's east division we ranked old dominion this week number 25 charlotte just outside the rankings there was a whole lot of hair splitting to decide uh which team we should rank uh this weekend will definitely clear it up for us until they play again next weekend this one obviously it has significant conference usa east division ramifications it also has hosting ramifications charlotte has the rpi to host right now old dominion lags behind a little bit at about 30 but if you give them you know eight games against charlotte and it to host they would have had to win at least five of them uh that's that's going to go up so you know these are teams on the periphery of the hosting race and they're just interesting teams i mean charlotte you know we had robert woodard on the podcast uh last summer you heard about how they built this team you know it was a lot of new players uh how the the pitchers had a unique summer going off to uh instead of playing summer ball, going off all to a a pitching development program together. Uh, And and then, you know, Old Dominion is uh, maybe a a little bit of an older group, but they're, uh, you know, they've done this kind of thing before under Chris Finwood, but maybe not quite this well. Um, So yeah, I I find it to be uh, a very intriguing matchup, not what I thought was going to happen in Conference USA East, uh, but it, in an in interesting, um, and we've arrived at a very interesting place, uh, even if it doesn't involve FAU, who we had labeled as the uh, the favorite in the East coming into the year.
0: Yeah, whoops, um, that stuff happens though. I mean, circling and back to the com- so. circling back to the um, <laughs> <laughs> to the conversation about you know the number of postseason bids coming from certain conferences. I think that's part of the, what we can really never really predict, honestly, is it's situations like this, right? Part of the reason why the SEC and ACC struggle to get to break through to 11 teams or what have you is because it seems like every year there is a conference like this, that if you would have told, if, if someone had tried to tell us that CUSA, like if you got a question in the chat, right? Beginning of the year, CUSA, four bid league, question mark, question mark. You'd have been like, uh, no, like I would what? have been
1: like, they're, they're going to struggle to get two. Like two seems like the max.
0: And so then we have a year like this where they're very likely going to get four. We had a year in 2019 where the Missouri Valley conference got three. So it's like stuff like that is what we can't ever really predict. And I think that's part of what hinders those major conferences from getting extra teams. But I digress, uh, back to the task at hand. I mean, these are two just, I think these are just two legit good teams. Like these are not even tricking the RPI. They did not trick the computers as a, as another podcast host has said about teams before it's um, they come out a little bit differently. um, Like you mentioned, I think old Dominion is just one of those kind of like platonic ideals of what we thought a veteran physical experienced 2021 team in a COVID year could be where they bring back, a big part of their core. It's a guys who have been around the block with them. It's also just a, a really talented group. I don't want to downplay that. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about guys like, you know, uh, Tommy Bell, Kyle battle who have tools and maybe they're not premier prospects, but they're, they're toolsy guys. And Andy Gariola, who, you know, could play his way into being, you know, a, a pretty hot prospect and has been for us before, you know, when, when he broke out as a freshman, I, we were really high on him. So um, but they, they, th- they kind of fill that in with some, some younger guys who have been really talented Two way guy and Kenny Lavari stands out for, for old dominion. Um, but on the mound, uh, with old dominion, it's, it's kind of the old school college baseball. Like if you're into the, Hey, we're going to start a guy and, and we're going to try to get innings out of them. Like that's kind of the way they, they want to play with Nick Pantos and mm-hmm. Ryan Moore and Hunter Gregory and, and Tommy Gertner, you know, with, with four game weekends, they've got four guys. And they're just going to try to get as much length as they can out of them. And they have some good bullpen arms. Um, you know, you're talking about Aaron Holiday or Noah Dean, whose ERA is not very good, but he's an overpowering arm that, you know, strikes out, you know, more than two batters per inning. Um, you know, walks are a little bit of an issue. That's the problem there, but but he's a he's a big time arm. Um, so I think it's just part of the reason why we went with Old Dominion over Charlotte is I, I believe to a greater degree in Old Dominion just being a legit good team and i think this is a team that could compete well even if they don't host could compete well to win a regional i think that's that kind of team they can beat you in a lot of different ways they can shut you down with a good pitching performance they can slug you it's a team with 62 home runs on the year Uh, really the only thing they can't do they're not they're not going to steal bases on you they're not going to run around the bases on you like that but but they can beat you just about any other way and i think that that bodes well with charlotte it's i think a situation where we were really fixated on the pitching talent and i that's understandable. And in and, and spots, it's been really good. Um, you know, Bryce McGowan's been their their most productive starter, and Christian Lotus in the bullpen has been excellent. But it feels like a situation where the pitching has been maybe it was an incorrect uh um, expectation on my part, but the pitching feels like it's maybe not quite been as good as I thought it might be. And the offense, I think, is pretty good in getting better. Um, you know, they've lost a couple of guys and Dominic Pilali and, and David McCabe have have missed some time, but they're back now and they're swinging the bat well. And Austin Knight, um, <laughs> just some incredible, like at this point of the season, it takes a lot to really look at a, a stat line and be kind of like taken aback by it because now we've played enough games where it's hard to get those. But Charlotte's Austin Knight is hitting 374 and he has 21 doubles, 21 doubles, uh, which is a lot. Um, that puts him on pace roughly to have, 35 over the course of the season, <laughs> whether or not he gets there, we don't know, but uh, that, that's just a lot of doubles from him. So it's, I think it's a pretty good, deep offense. And early in the year, it was really looking like, Hey, this is a team that I think is going to have to pitch their way in and out of games. because I don't know if they're going to have enough offense to get it done. And now I think those two things have kind of met in the middle. I think they can win games a couple of different ways, but right now I feel like I'm most confident in their offensive attack with the way they've been swinging it as of late just a big series overall like like you said at the top it's everything is on the table in this series if one of these two teams over the next couple of weeks wins five or six of the eight i think that's a team that that we're going to be talking about potentially hosting particularly if it's charlotte charlotte's got a little bit of a leg up like you mentioned in terms of rpi and things like that so in particular if it's charlotte that ends up winning these eight games uh, i think they're in in good shape to be talked about as a host with old dominion i think that's also very possible particularly if we're talking about going six and two in the eight, but it starts with four this weekend in Charlotte. Um, exciting series. I'm really looking forward to seeing how it plays out.
1: David McCabe coming back was uh, really significant for that Charlotte offense. He hit eight home runs very early <laughs> in the season. Uh, just got off to a, a sensational start. Got hurt, and um, you know having him back is a big deal. Uh, Carter Trice on the flip side, for ODU has been as impactful as any true freshman in the country. I feel like. I mean, there are some true freshmen that have bigger numbers, looking at you, Jacob Berry. Um, But, you know, I I would say Trice and uh, Parada probably have made the two biggest impacts of anyone. Parada is having a a very strong season, but a, a large part of his impact comes from the fact that he's a catcher and um, you know, it's hard to hard to get really great offensive catching. So if you're if you're doing that, you know, that that just inherently big time impact. But Trice is leading ODU in a whole host of offensive stats. Uh, you know, he's hitting like 380 with nine home runs and just that's the kind of player that that you need if you're if you're an ODU to to come in and and uh you know, really just make that big impact because you know that in conference USA, a player like that. I mean, they don't not everyone has that. And, and so if you can get that in there and you mix in some of those veteran arms, like you mentioned, a Gariola, um, you know, then uh or veteran players rather, uh, then you know, you really have you you really start to to build something special. And I think that's what's happening uh in Norfolk right now this year. So very intrigued to to see how this series plays out. Um, I I think it can go a number of different ways here, particularly when you consider that it's going to be going for two weeks. So whatever happens this week, they're going to have to come back and do the whole thing over again. And, um, you know, still kind of getting used to that dynamic around the country. We saw that with Wichita state and Houston um, already in kind of a a premium series. It's not like they're the only ones that have played back-to-back series to this point, but that was, that was one that I certainly was, was keeping an eye on, but, you know, and I know LaTeX and Southern miss weren't back to back, but it was within the span of a couple of weeks. And uh those were eight, very entertaining games. So I would, I would love to get another one of those from conference USA.
0: The other thing that this is a discussion for the future further, but if the stock price on ODU and Charlotte, if those were stocks would be pretty high right now, just given what they've already done. But, it still probably is not too late to buy a little bit on that. Obviously Charlotte is a, is a program that is very much future focused right now. They do want to win in the present. I'm not downplaying that, but this is definitely a program that Robert Woodard and his staff are, are certainly looking to the future with and, and trying to build something sustainable. And, you know, old Dominion's going to lose particularly some guys in the mound, but you know, you mentioned Carter Trice and that, that's a good point, but you know, Robbie Petrosi is also a freshman, you know, he's one of their better hitters this year. Kenny Lavari is a freshman, one of their better hitters this year. You know, I don't know that it'll be this good moving forward, but this is definitely a team that Old Dominion is not going to be going away. Just you know, completely, it's not going to be a full rebuild next year. So these are two teams that uh, I think are going to be around for a while that we're going to be talking about at least into 2022. Um, So if you're a fan of a Conference USA team, that might not be great news, but I think it is good news for the conference as we start looking at 2022 and 2023 and how does Conference USA build on this season, which is so clearly going to be a banner year for a conference. It's been a little bit maligned recently.
1: No doubt
0: about that.
1: All right, those are those are the four that I picked as the uh, the biggest series of the weekend. Joe, what do you got for our fifth one?
0: Okay, we're headed to the northeast for this one. Uh, we specifically the northeast conference. Uh, this weekend we've got Bryant visiting Central Connecticut State. Uh, the two top teams in the NEC, Bryant comes in with an 11-1 and record in conference play. Central Connecticut State comes in with an 11-4 and record. Not a surprise to see these, these two teams at the top of that conference. Bryant, of course, you know, if you're a listener to this podcast, you know the song and dance with Bryant, that this is the class of the NEC. Although, you know, not as many regional appearances as, as you might think, given the way they've dominated regular season, but that just speaks to the inherent craziness of conference tournaments sometimes, but um, certainly the team that has dominated the regular season there. In Central Connecticut State's always just right there for the most part. They're usually kind of hanging around and you know right behind Bryant there, and, and they've been able to take advantage in conference tournaments a couple times and, and get to a couple uh, recently. Um, so it should be a good weekend. Bryant, um, not shockingly with that 11-1 record in conference play, has put up some ridiculous numbers. conference games as an offense as a team in the conference they're hitting 366 454 552 led by james salento who's putting up the following slash line in conference games 569 631 843 which is uh pretty good as i check my notes here pitching it's been a similar story 186 era in conference games highlighted by tyler madison and he's a name who you come into the season he was one of the more anticipated pitchers in the Northeast for, for people to watch from a scouting perspective and got off to a little bit of a slow start uh, before Bryant got into conference play, but now he's really taken off. He's 4-0 in conference games with an 0-64 ERA and a 37-0 to strikeout-to-walk ratio, so um, he's really taken off as Bryant has gotten into its its conference games, and that's been true of the, the pitching staff uh, more generally. Central Connecticut State's numbers aren't quite as eye-popping, but they've, they've been pretty good. Although the thing I noticed most here as I looked at some numbers with um, CCSU is that they used to play their home games at something called Beehive Field. And I would really like, I both love and would not love to find out why they called it Beehive Field. That sounds like that could be a little bit of a dangerous situation, but regardless, they no longer play at at Beehive Field. That's my little, my little tidbit there. Uh, They've just been consistent. They've won every series conference series so far this year. Their offense is led by a couple of veterans in Jay DeVito and Buddy DeWayne, guys who have have been around the program for a long time. Their best arm has been Andrew Braun. Uh, He's got a similarly impressive 44 to three strikeout to walk ratio um, in conference games. So they're like a little bit of Bryant light in terms of of what they're doing. Uh, But given that they're home for this series, I think this is a good opportunity for them to maybe pull a little bit closer to Bryant, um, which I feel like is just the role that central Connecticut state kind of plays in this conference, you know, they're always kind of scrapping up at Bryant and maybe they'll get their shots in. Um, but this is their opportunity to kind of, uh, even it up there, but certainly Bryant will come in as the favorite.
1: If central Connecticut state's going to do it, they're going to have to find a way to, uh, to get to Matt, the the, one of the two Tylers for, for Bryant, Madison or Schaaf. Uh, those are two very experienced pitchers on the Bryant pitching staff. Like you mentioned, Madison, uh, is the, the bigger of the prospects. He impressed in the Cape league before, and, um, he kind of had a disappointing 20 before things got shut down in a different world. He would not be back at Bryant this year, I don't think. Um, but he is, and he has this insane 48 to three strikeout to walk rate in 41 innings. So that's pretty good. And and that's coming at you. Uh, if, if you're central Connecticut state, but Tyler Schaaf, who, I don't know as much about cause I haven't watched him in the Cod league, uh, but he's having a, a pretty strong season himself, uh, statistically only a little bit behind Madison. And, you know, so those two guys really make the whole thing go. The rest of the pitching staff is not, uh, quite at that level. Vita Morgese has been in the Bryant rotation. I feel like for 10 years now, um, I almost never say that about players, but I seriously feel like I've written about him for the entire time I've had this job. Uh, and so it, it, there are a lot of veterans, I guess is the point here, that, that Bryant can throw at you. And I think that that you know their offense has been doing it and it's impressive. But, but if I was going to point to one thing that I really liked about this Bryant team, I think it's just the veteran pitching staff. Um, Steve Owens left a lot of talent there. Uh, Some of that talent has gone elsewhere. Uh, Also, it's just been two years since he's been there. So some of it's just naturally matriculated. Some of it transferred away. Uh, But Ryan Klosterman inherited a pretty good situation there, endured a difficult start to the 2020 season. uh, And, you know, they they played a challenging non-conference schedule this year, and things weren't going amazingly for Bryant from a a wins and losses standpoint. But now as they get into conference play, maybe – they've been able to see some of the the fruits of that labor. Uh, and, and then this weekend would be a big, uh, big test of that because you're right. Central Connecticut, if it's not been Bryant, it's largely been central Connecticut state uh, over the last several years in this conference. So anytime these two teams get together, it's a big deal. But this year, especially with them at the top of the standings, uh, one and two, it, uh,
0: it does take on some extra,
1: uh, extra juice.
0: Turns out Beehive Field uh, was primarily the stadium for the Red Sox New Britain uh, affiliate. So that's uh, that probably has more to do with with that club versus anything Central Connecticut State related. Uh, you or, mentioned, I
1: mean, I'm just like thinking, was there a nest of bees there? Or something? was there a <laughs> very well beehive? could be they,
0: <laughs> the game is actually just played in a giant beehive like that was constructed over the years. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Central Connecticut State kind of always being in this position and. Uh, Shout out to Charlie Hickey, their, their head coach. He's kind of one of those like low-key coaching legends in college baseball. He's been there 20 plus years now. And in a world before Bryant was in the NEC, like Central Connecticut State kind of ran that conference. I don't know if it was 01, 02, 03 or 02, 03, 04. I forget what the three years was, but there was one point where they made three regionals in a row, which isn't impressive in any of these one bid leagues because it means you're winning the conference tournament every year. They've also just done a good job of interspersing. Seems like they're in a regional once every handful of years uh, and they're always pretty good. Uh, He's won a lot of games there. So, you know, he's one of those coaches that has just kind of quietly been someplace for a really long time and, and had a lot of success for sure.
1: No doubt about that. And, you know, it should be noted here that central Connecticut state lost its best player last year, T.T. Bowens uh, to pro ball, signed as a a non-drafted free agent. So, you know, they, uh, they potentially could have returned him just because everyone could have come back, but he, uh, they lost him. They have continued to, to to roll here without him. And um, you know, so again, uh more more credit uh to what Central Connecticut State has been able to do. And uh, we'll we will certainly keep an eye on this NEC showdown this weekend. All right, Joe, that's gonna do it in terms of uh the series we're previewing. We've uh we got a lot going on this weekend i think that some of it is maybe a little more um condensed or no, that's the wrong word it's a little more focused the this uh this weekend for instance we didn't mention the pack 12 at all i don't think it's a particularly good weekend out on the west coast um so maybe we can uh focus in on some of these series a little more than uh, the last few weeks, it's almost been like a fire hose. There's been so much coming at us. So uh, we'll we'll see what kind of weekend we have in store overall. But no matter what it is, we'll be back here with a new episode of the Baseball America College podcast on Monday. Again, if you subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite podcasting apps, it'll pop right into your phone there when we publish it on Monday, wrapping up all the goings on around the country in week 10. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We will have plenty of analysis throughout the weekend. Uh, Joe is planning to be on hand in South Carolina. So get some, uh, get some updates from him on that series. And we'll have everything covered on the website, baseballamerica.com throughout the weekend. And then a new top 25 and all the, the fun stuff that comes with it on Monday. So be sure to check that out as well. Like I said, we'll be back here to break it all down again on Monday. Until then, I want to thank you all for listening. Thank you to Soto for presenting the Baseball America College podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.